Uh, our Bible reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 19, verse 28 to 48. And uh, I'll just read that for you this morning. When he said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached, uh, as he approached Bethphage and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of, his, uh, two of the disciples and said, Go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it, uh, and bring it. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent left and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, the own, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? The Lord needs it, they said. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their clothes on the colt, they helped Jesus get on, uh, get on it. As he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. As he approached and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, If you knew this day, what would bring peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground. And they will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. He went into the temple and began to throw out those who were selling. And he said, it is written, my, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Every day he was teaching in the, in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes and the leaders of the people were looking for a way to kill him, but they could not find a way to do it because all the people were captivated by what, he, uh, by what they heard. So let's pray and ask God to give us insight into this uh, uh, part of Scripture. Lord, we just uh, come before you really asking that you will open our hearts, open our minds, reveal yourself through your text this morning as we focus on uh, Jesus' um, I guess, triumphal entry into Jerusalem on this uh, Palm Sunday. And so we pray that you will bless us as we look at this together. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. <clears throat> Pardon me. Uh, the first thing we're going to be looking at this morning is that the King of Peace comes into his city of peace. Now, there are times in life when uh, things seem and feel kind of momentous, aren't they? As if uh, there's this feeling when something really significant is about to happen. You're about to make a great decision, you know, you're about to perhaps do something extraordinary and, and it seems as though the whole world holds its breath. It is that moment before the race begins and you wait for the, for, the, uh, for the gun to go off. It's after all that practice and training and all the work that you've done, it's all come down to that moment when you kneel on the starting blocks just before uh, the gun goes off. It is that moment before you enter the interview, briefcase in hand, adjusting your suit, or before you open the boardroom door, you know. It's the five minutes before uh, the auction starts at a home. 
It is Frodo standing with his hand outstretched over Mount Doom. These are the moments when uh, everything that has happened kind of come together, every plan that has been put into place, every point of preparation that has been made, it all draws together to this moment. And often we pause at that time and say to ourselves, well, it comes down to this. This is it. Here we go. And that's the kind of feeling we are supposed to get when we read about Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. These few short verses are um, kind of awash with Old Testament prophecy. You can hardly read a sentence in, uh, in this text without seeing some sort of echo from the Old Testament in it. it is, it's almost as if uh, you know, Jesus has had 30, 33 odd years to, to, to live his life and to fulfill the prophecies, but there are still a few that, that he's got to get out of the way, so he wants to fulfill a whole bunch of them all quickly before the end, and he makes sure that it all comes together. And so we've got a little bit of work to do this morning to, to really grapple with and come to terms with our text and, and what it teaches and how it references uh, the rest of Scripture. But thankfully, the text gives us these three handy kind of handles to, uh, to hang on uh, as, we, as we look through this text. And the first one of these is that the King of Peace comes to his city of peace. And so let's look firstly at this king of peace as he comes riding into the city of peace, Jerusalem, uh, on a donkey. Now, what we have here, this picture of Jesus riding on a donkey, is a bit of a conundrum for us, isn't it? You know, all throughout his life, Jesus walked everywhere. Even this morning we heard about, in the children's talk, how he was just walking along the beach. Sometimes he might take a boat somewhere, particularly if he was tired. Um, but as you read the Gospels, Jesus never rides a horse or a donkey or a chariot or some other thing. He walks where he goes. Even when the Gospels tell us that he was very weary, that he was tired from his labours, he walked. Sometimes he got into a boat to make a point, but primarily he walked wherever he went. He was uh, homeless and he didn't really have any possessions. And so Scripture doesn't even mention that uh, when Mary comes to, uh, you know, when she was pregnant with Jesus, even there we don't actually have a scriptural reference for her riding on a donkey into Bethlehem. That's something we sort of made up um, as she was pregnant with Jesus. And so if Bethany and Bethphage were really quite close to Jerusalem and Jesus had never called for any animal to carry him on his long journey, there must be something specific that he wants to point out here, right? There's got to be some reason for him to all of a sudden call for this donkey to come uh, and bear him in, specifically a colt that no one had ever ridden before. So what is Jesus doing here? Well, Jesus was making a very specific claim. He is saying, I am the Messiah. I am the coming King. If you've got your Bibles with you, turn with me to uh, Zechariah 9 verse 9. And there we read the prophet Zechariah pro, uh, proclaiming about this coming Messiah and he says there um, to Jerusalem, he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout with triumph, O daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
You see, Jesus here is making a very deliberate claim. He's saying, I am that king, that promised king, that prophesied king. I am he, the one who was supposed to come. Jerusalem, open your eyes. Your king is finally here. Now, as you know, we've been traveling through, uh, following God's story of redemption um, from, from the Garden of Eden all the way to, to Revelation in the Garden City. Uh, and we're jumping a little bit ahead from where we are in the story. But as we have seen so far, all throughout the Old Testament, the story has been building up to this one who would come and save and redeem Israel, who will save the world. And we saw that it wasn't Moses, we needed a better Moses. It wasn't the judges, we needed a better judge. It wasn't the kings, we needed a better David. Even David, the the man, the king after God's own heart, failed miserably. And as where we left the story last week, Israel, who continued to turn away from God, has been carried off to exile. And it wasn't even the people of Israel, even they failed the test. But even as Israel was rebuilt years later, God remains true to his promise that one day, one will come who will save his people. One day this Messiah, this coming one, will finally be there. And Jesus here, choosing to ride on a donkey, claims that promise and says, I am now here. But he's also doing a second thing. He's not just announcing his arrival, he's saying, I'm coming not as a king to conquer, I am coming as a king of peace. You see, when a king rode a donkey in those days, it was a sign of peace. If you wanted to make war, if you wanted to come and conquer, you came on a war horse to signal uh, that you are here to fight the enemy army. It is a symbol of, of, um, of victory as you ride into the city that you have conquered. But Jesus here is making a very particular royal claim. He says, not only am I the Messiah who is coming, but I'm not just the kind of king who's going to come and overthrow Rome. He's going to be the king of peace. And as we see, Jesus, it seems to us that Jesus even made plans to make this very statement himself. You know, in, in the story, there's this donkey, this foal, uh, and uh, the disciples go in and they just say, the Lord needs it, and the, the people just happily let them take the donkey away. It's... Uh, it seems most likely that Jesus, or at least some of his disciples, had arranged for this animal to be ready for him to come when he came into the city. He would give this password that the Lord needs it and that uh, they would then give it to Jesus as pre-planned. It seems to me that that's what's most likely. You see, this was God's plan all the way in Genesis, that Jesus would come to Jerusalem. This was God's plan in Zechariah when he gave the prophet these words to write down that the king would come riding on a colt. And even here, it is Jesus' plan to come and fulfill that story. He has been uh, prophesied, everything has been made ready, and really the moment is now. This is it. The king of peace has come to usher in peace. The type of peace we're talking about here is not just uh, peace from war. It's not just, uh, you know, not being in conflict. The sense of peace here is really that shalom peace of, uh, of Scripture. It is a sense of wholeness and wellness and fullness and completeness, a sense that all is well with the world no matter what's going on in the world. No matter what's going on, everything will be okay. 
That's the kind of peace Jesus has come to usher in. It is a sense that it is well with my soul even in the midst of chaos and craziness. And as his people, this kind of peace is available to us too. But the question is, do we have this kind of peace? Do you and I have this internal sense that no matter actually what happens to us or what happens around us, or even to our children and our families, despite all of that, that in the end we'll be okay? Do we have that confidence, that hope in God? I think the truth is that often we actually lack this sense of peace, don't we? And so we try and find it in in places that we think that will give us this feeling of wholeness and completeness. We look for it in other people or or in our hobbies to distract us from this internal wrestling and, uh, and unsettledness. We look for the sense of wholeness and completeness in our families, in our children, in our toys, in our Legos, in our money, in our jobs, in our volunteering positions, all these things that we kind of uh, build around us to give us a sense of now I'm fulfilled. And yet no matter how good any of these individual things might be in and of themselves, the reality is that they do not and will not sustain that sense of completeness. Even as good as they are, that, that feeling that they might give us, it doesn't keep giving us that throughout, time, throughout the rest of our lives. It does not sustain that sense of wholeness and completeness which only Christ can offer. Inevitably, all of these things leave us feeling empty again. Sarah and I just uh, recently started a new project together. It has taken us almost 11 years to find a hobby that we both will enjoy. Um, and uh, and so, <laughs> so we've started building one of these expert level um, Lego sets of 4,000 th- 4, pieces. It's massive. And it's great. Every week we spend time together, we get to build this thing, and it really gives us a sense of, of joy and encouragement. But the reality is, friends, after a few weeks, that thing will be finished too. And the sense of joy and, and if I can, peace and wholeness that that gives us will pass. And then if, if we are like all other human beings, we'll go looking for the next one to build, right? It does not sustain. It cannot sustain in the end. Only Christ can give us that eternal sense of completeness that eternal sense of peace in our souls where we can truly say it is well with my soul because we trust in Jesus. Maybe this is something that the old uh, previous generations of Christians understood better than we do. That's why they wrote songs like What a Friend We Have in Jesus. It says in verse 2 of that song, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. And what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Friends, do you know this peace? Do you know this peace? 
Because the truth of the matter is that you cannot and will not know this peace, peace with one another, peace with mankind, peace with ourselves, unless Jesus is the source of that peace. Unless you know this king of peace who came riding on a donkey, you can actually never know true and lasting contentment, true and lasting peace in your soul. This is ultimately why the king of peace, Jesus, came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Why? So that he can bring peace to all those who would believe and trust in him to fulfill them. That plan of salvation, which was put into place eons ago, that plan that had been hinted at all throughout the scripture as we've been following this story, uh, that plan that even Jesus here himself prepared by arranging, it has all now been set in motion. The King of Peace has finally come to the City of Peace to bring peace. And on Friday we will look at, of course, how he does that. And we, know, we know the answer, don't we? He came to deal with the true chaos in our hearts to bring us peace. And so the, the king of peace coming into the city of peace is the first thing we need to see. The second thing we look at this morning is that the king of peace actually cries. He cries over this city of peace. You know, we shouldn't kind of get too carried away. Here we, we see this uh, king of peace kind of entering into enemy territory in a sense. And yes, he's come to take his place on the throne uh, and we can be carried away like the people were to think that he's coming as a conquering king. And that's true, but he comes to conquer in a way that no one would ever expect. He comes conquering in love. And we see here this, um, a, a very big contrast between Jesus coming as the conquering king and, and what he's feeling inside. He is motivated by this intense love for his people. This is not something we often think about, is it? That Jesus comes crying over the city. Verse 41, As he approached Jerusalem and he saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, If you even you had only known on this day what would, bring your what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. And then he talks about how Jerusalem is going to be destroyed by the Romans. And in fact, that happens about 40 years after, after this day. And here we see Jesus with his heart full of love for his people. He wants his people to be saved. And the tears he cries is real tears of sadness because they are so blind to what they really, truly need. One commentator puts it this way. He says, Our Lord looks on the city he loves and his heart melts. Perhaps you have not thought about this at any great length, but God cries. Here the Son of God with all the power and glory, looks on the city of sinful man. But thunder does not rumble, and lightning does not flash in divine curses. The earth does not quake in destruction. Instead, rivulets of tears flow down the Saviour's face. He weeps for the city, for entire cities and for entire communities and for entire nations. He weeps because uh, what he had come to bring has somehow escaped them. It eluded them. 
If you, says Jesus, if even you had only known this day what would bring you peace. But Jesus knows. He knows that Jerusalem doesn't want a king on a donkey. They want a king on a war horse. They didn't want their king to come to die in their place. They wanted a king who would be worth dying for, right? Who would fight their oppressors, a king they could really get behind and form an army behind. They wanted to prove their own worth, really. But don't you see, friends, that you and I are often in the same predicament? It's been the same way since the very beginning. We want to save ourselves. We want to stand up and be counted. We don't really want a king on a donkey who wins by losing, at least according to the world standards. We want to strive and fight for God and prove our worth, don't we? But notice what Jesus says about that attitude. He says, in the end, judgment will come because you have not accepted your king. The judgment Jerusalem would face is the destruction of the city and its temple as, as Rome came and sacked the city in 70 AD. But even that was just a glimpse of the true judgment that awaits everyone who rejects Jesus as their, their king. It is a fate far worse than washing, watching their children being ground into the floor as our text talks about in front of us. The fate that uh, awaits for all those who reject Christ is eternal hell and separation from him. Being thrown into that outer darkness that scripture and that Jesus talks about so very often. And there's only one way for us to avoid that fate and that is to trust Jesus, to accept him as our king and to stop trying to make ourselves worthy before God. To stop striving for perfection in our own strength, but to trust in Jesus' strength instead. The reality is, friends, that it is difficult for us to trust in Jesus and not our own works. Right? It almost takes a lifetime to master because it goes against every fibre of our being. It is contrary to every man-made religion there is. It's contrary to the man-made religion that we have often made of church as well. Because it says, do something and you will be right with God. And that's easy. If there is a mountain to climb to save ourselves, we would climb it. No matter how big or how tall, we would train, we would work hard, we would climb it, and we would save ourselves to be right with God, wouldn't we? The religions of the world tell us to do things like give alms to the poor, pray five times a day, abstain from these foods, read your holy text daily. Buddha's last words were to strive without ceasing or to strive with earnestness, depending on your translation. Strive, work, do. That is the essence of man-made religion, isn't it? But what did Jesus say when he hung on the cross? He says, it is finished. The work has been done. Don't strive anymore because I have done it. Right? 
But in our heart of hearts, every single human being, you and me, we have this innate desire to strive and prove ourselves before God. Israel wanted a king worth dying for. They wanted someone for whom they could fight. They wanted to prove themselves and save themselves. They did not want a king who died for them to save them. But that is who we have. A king who died for us to save us. Jesus cries over Jerusalem. And he cries over the judgment that they would receive as a result of not trusting in him. The king of peace cries when he looks at how lost the world is. And then lastly, the king of peace cleans out the religion of the day. He cleans out the temple. We've seen how the king of peace comes into the city of peace, how the king of peace cries over the city of peace, and now how the king of peace comes to clean out the city of peace, particularly the temple. Read with me from verse 45. He went into the temple and began to throw out those who were selling. This is the king of peace, right? He tosses them out. And he says, It is written... My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Every day he was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, the leaders of the people were looking for a way to kill him, but they could not find a way to do it because all the people were captivated by what they had heard. Now, I'm very interested in space, in stars, uh, and... um, That's astronomy, not astrology. That's quite different. Uh, I like to look at the stars. You know, I'm really interested in in the universe. I think it's it's amazing, really, the science of the cosmos. Now, most of you, I think all of you, would probably have heard of this concept of a black hole. A black hole isn't actually black. You can't actually even really see it. Because when you look at it, what happens is that the, the light bends around it. Uh, It's a warping of space because of the gravity that's inside. It's kind of like when you move a a magnifying glass over something and it bends the light underneath it, right? Now, as the light bends in the glass, it warps the picture of what is below. The same thing happens to a black hole. When you look at a black hole, you actually see the stars behind it because the light around it has been warped. Now, the reason this happens is that the gravity of a black hole is so strong that not even light can escape it. Once you pass over what's called an event horizon, nothing, not even light, can get back out. That's at least as well as we understand it today. There is this kind of point of no return, and once you cross it, your destiny is set in stone. Even as a light beam, you cannot escape and pass around it or through it anymore. Now, Jesus entering into Jerusalem is this kind of event horizon. When you read all four Gospels, there is a point at which it says something like, and now Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem, and then he travels to the city. But having entered into Jerusalem, he has now passed that event horizon. He's crossed the threshold, and once he does that, it's as if his demeanor has changed. This King of Peace who has just been crying over the city being emotionally moved to compassion over these people, does some pretty remarkably rebellious, if I might, things, right? It's like he's, he's past the point of no return and he said, okay, this is it, it comes down to this, and he's got his mind so firmly set on the plan that the very first thing Jesus does as he enters into the city is to clear out the temple. And we need to understand two things about that. Firstly, look at the words 
Jesus uses. He's quoting here from Isaiah 56, verse 6, where the temple is called a house of prayer for all nations. And what's interesting is that um, it's a very interesting part of the book of Isaiah, the, the chapter and verse that we find in this in, because it's really actually a promise to the Gentiles, so not to the Jews. God in that chapter says that every foreigner, everyone who is not from the house of Israel, who has bound themselves to God, can come with great confidence before God because the sovereign Lord, that is God, will gather in all the exiles. Now we're in that group, right? But instead of making the temple a house of prayer for everyone who wants to pray to God, this temple has become a den of robbers. Now here Jesus is quoting from Jeremiah chapter 7. Now, the reality is that we read the Gospels really quite regularly, but I would hazard a guess that most of us don't tend to read through the big prophets all that often. Am I right? Yeah, I think I'm right. We're quite used to the story of Jesus throwing out the people of, of the temple, um, but we're not quite aware of what is going on behind the scenes. So allow me to read here from the chapter where this den of robbers is talked about. So Jeremiah 7, it says there from verse... Um, uh, I'll, I'll read just a, a selection. He says, Hear the word of the Lord, you people of Judah, who come through these gates to worship the Lord. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow the other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, We are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made my dwelling for my name and see um, what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called to you, but you did not answer. Now, therefore, what I did at Shiloh, I will do to the house that bears my name, the temple that you trust in, the place I gave to you and your fathers. I will thrust you from my presence, just as I did all your brothers, the people of Ephraim. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, My anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, on man and beast, on the trees of the field and on the fruit of the ground, and, I will, uh, and it will burn and not be quenched. Ouch, right? And Jesus says that to the Pharisees in the temple, these people that are selling all these things in the temple. Now, let me be clear. This is not an injunction. This is not a command against a cup, a cup of coffee after church, right? That's not what's going on here. When Jesus is throwing these people out of the temple courts, he's doing so in a way that, that shows that he is done with this empty religion, that God is done with this empty religion that the Jews have brought to him. The problem wasn't so much that there were money changers in the temple. That was probably necessary, actually, because Jews would come from far and wide. They would have carried a multitude of different types of coins, if you're coming to offer a sheep in the temple, you're not taking a flock with you all the way from where you were to come to the temple and offer it there. You sell your sheep, you bring your money, you come to the temple, you swap your money over, you buy a sheep, you offer it there. The issue was that the temple had become a for-profit business. These people had made it expensive to come to God. They made forgiveness of sins something that was unattainable for people. Atonement became expensive. Forgiveness of sins became expensive. The offerings you were supposed to offer were sold for as much as 17 times their normal value. 
it barred people, it stopped people from being able to come to God and offer their offerings of, of atonement. And Jesus comes and literally turns the tables upside down, but what he's really doing is he's figuratively turning the whole system upside down. The good news is that, that salvation is from God, and, and as cheap as it was in the days of Israel, it is now free for everyone who would come and accept the free gift that Jesus uh, offers us. In one sense, salvation is the cheapest thing you can ever buy. As in our um, call to worship this morning, there is this great invitation in Isaiah 55. Come, anyone, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Be fed spiritually for free. Salvation is, in one sense, the cheapest thing you could ever buy. It costs you nothing. What it actually costs you is to stop striving, to stop trying to save yourself, to trust, though, in the one who paid for it all, in Jesus, this King who comes uh, to bring us peace. But on the other hand, salvation is, in another sense, the most expensive thing the most costly thing you could ever have. It won't cost you money, but it will cost you your life. That is why Scripture says to anyone who wants to follow Jesus, take up your cross, an implement of death, to daily crucify ourselves, to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, to daily die to self and to live for Christ. Jesus says, my salvation won't cost you everything, but if you trust in me, I won't stop working on you until you are a completely changed person, the person I made you to be, the person I want you to be. Once Jesus begins with us, he will not stop until we are made new. In some ways, salvation is the cheapest thing you can ever have. It's totally free. But it will cost you a lifetime commitment to Christ. And once he starts tossing around the temples in our hearts, he won't finish until he has taken up complete residence. And that won't cost us anything. But it will cost us everything. And that's a good thing. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to come again and sit under your word and listen to the fulfillment of prophecy as Jesus comes on Palm Sunday uh, as the conquering king who came to lose in order to win. What a gift to be your people, to be part of that grand mystery That grand story where we are set free by you, if only we would stop trying to save ourselves and trust in you. Lord, help us to freely give our lives to you. Change our hearts, Lord. Have your way in us. And give us this peace that eludes us because we try and strive for ourselves. We pray this, Lord, not because we deserve it, but because you are a gracious and compassionate God who weeps over our people. Lord, we pray that you will weep over us and change our hearts from the inside. 
We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.